Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The wrangling uh, goes on, ladies and gentlemen, even as we speak. Up in Manchester, Andy Burnham is still holding firm on his position that he won't accept Tier 3 lockdown despite the facts presented to him by the government that the critical care beds in Greater Manchester will be overwhelmed by this time next month. You just heard Vaughan Gethin there in Wales saying, if we don't do something now, we will be overwhelmed. Well, that may well be, or it may well not be, because could it be, for example, that Andy Burnham doesn't believe the government? Could it be that he knows something that they don't when they say they'll be overwhelmed by this time next month? Could it be that the projected figures are actually incorrect? We've got some very interesting information this morning to bring you. We've been talking to a statistician who will give us the real lowdown on the numbers game, and it's very different from the one that's being painted by the lockdown enthusiasts, including, of course, the government. Only yesterday, Labour MP Chris Bryant told a barefaced lie about the number of people in hospital beds on the Dan Wooden show after calling my drive-time colleague a dangerous conspiracy theorist just because he questioned the figures. And he then called all the distinguished doctors who signed the Great Barrington Declaration crackpots. What would you expect from the new Labour Party? Pretty much like the old Labour Party, really. We'll ask Dr. Wakar Rashid what he makes of all that. And also of the new figures out this morning of all of the other deaths which are up massively as a result of lockdown and as a result of COVID-19 being an obsessive disease that only can be fixed apparently, by the government. 0344 499 1000. As ever, we need to hear from you, of course, especially if you are in lockdown or about to be. As far as I know, those who want to be are in a massive majority. So do call if you disagree with any of that. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we're joined by commentator Esther Kraku with her take on the latest news from the USA on Trump and Biden, the reputation of TV's John Leslie, who was cleared yesterday of fondling a woman at a Christmas party 12 years ago. Will his reputation and his career ever recover? Seems unlikely, doesn't it? Plus, Dr. Rakiba San will be here from the Henry Jackson Society on why the beheading of a teacher by an Islamic terrorist should be a wake-up call to the rest of Europe. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest-growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, yesterday I told you there was a lot of nonsense being talked, a lot of mistruths being spoken, a lot of statistics damned lies and other statistics were being used uh, to try and make the point by the Welsh government, uh, by the British government, by Andy Burnham up in Manchester. Nobody really believes, I don't think, that we are going to be overwhelmed. We weren't overwhelmed in the spring and now there are fewer cases of COVID than there were back then. So surely the sensible thing to do is not to do what the Welsh have done, which is to lock down the entire country just because of a few deaths from COVID-19. We're going to talk to our first guest, Dr. Rashid uh, Wakar Rashid right now, uh, who's a consultant neurologist and an MS specialist, of course. Wakar, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks very much indeed uh, for coming back on to us. I mean, uh, when I see these kinds of statistics, surgery postponed for 50,000 children in England uh, between March and May, stroke treatments down 45%, 87,000 heart ultrasounds in England in April and May down uh, from 274,000, cancers detected each week down 58%, A&E visits down 52%. It goes on and on and on. Um, You do wonder whether anyone in government is taking uh, notes of 
what is actually happening around COVID-19 uh, as a result of the obsession with COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pleased that this has been given more publicity now. And I think there was, there's been a couple of front pages and prominent newspaper articles in addition to uh, the work that you've been doing on Untalk Radio. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that this is starting to come to light because I think genuinely people, a lot of people are not aware of this. Yeah. And, and I think um, when you hear even politicians, but also just uh, uh, people commenting in different forums, they, they seem to think lockdown is a risk-free um, panacea to rising infections. And people have got to understand that there is a, a really serious consequence to these actions, as you mentioned, with uh, I think uh, the figures put at about 26,000 excess home deaths for the period so far to date, over 100 per day, excess mm. home deaths, not COVID, um, including in my specialty, people with, with dementia, Parkinson's disease, and so on. Uh, and so people have got to understand that when when politicians and other people are um, are saying, well, um, or scientists are advising lockdown, there is a cost to this. This is not simply uh, a get out of jail card that we can do to, to take the pressure off the NHS. Well, exactly right. And also yesterday I began this campaign to try and get at the truth um, Dr. Wakar, and it's very difficult because you keep seeing politicians claiming, as we've just heard Vaughan Gethin in Wales saying, you know, if we don't do something now, you know, we will be overwhelmed. Well, there's no guarantee of that whatsoever. Given the numbers of people who are dying in Wales and given the numbers of people in hospital and the capacity that they've got, they're misrepresenting it. So, um, this is the dreaded modelling <laughs> again. Um, I, I heard a little bit of um, the interview yesterday with uh, Chris Bryant and Dan Wooten. Yes. and I think he, uh, I mean, I... Absolutely shocking from a person who's employed by the public purse uh, to represent a constituency, to call eminent doctors crackpots. I mean, what sort of madness is this? I mean, you know, it's his opinion. But uh, I think what he said in the interview, and I may be wrong on this, was uh, he was claiming that there were 74% ICU beds occupied in his... Um, local uh, hospital, um, which, I'm, you know, uh, you're going to have somebody on talking more about statistics. I'll take that at face value. But 74% is actually a pretty low figure. Yes. Uh, routinely in the UK, we are always bordering on a, on a, on a knife edge, we're, particularly as we're getting to this time of year and onwards with critical care beds. So, uh, figures of 85% above occupancy are normal. Um, people may remember, if you think back several years or more, um, there were stories in the press of people having to travel hundreds of miles to get to ITU beds, and a national database was then set up. This goes back uh, 10 years or more ago. So this is not a new problem. Um, it, I'm sure you're going to talk about Manchester. The, and I'm, I'm really, you know, I, I take my hat off to the, the local council leaders and the mayor there who came out with this press statement yesterday uh, which really clarified the situation with their critical care beds at about, you know, about 80, 85% normal for this time of year. Um, uh, despite all the um, things that were being put out uh, um, about hospitals being overwhelmed, overwhelmed, critical care beds being overwhelmed, the figure is as we would expect for this time of year. Right, exactly right. And what I thought was appalling from Chris Bryant was not so much that he made out that that was a dangerously high figure, but that when he was then asked what it was last year, he said, oh, it was about half of that, which was actually yeah, I mean, a complete and utter well, falsehood, an absolute I mean, lie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it, I, I, I heard that as well, and I thought, well, you, you know, what are they doing there then? They obviously don't need a hospital there. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 80, 85, getting up to 90 as we get to winter is normal. Uh, it shouldn't be. I think we should have more slack in the system in general. Right. But that's that's how it is in this country. Well, I'm led to believe, uh, Dr. Wacker, I was listening to uh, somebody talking about the numbers of beds in the Greater Manchester area. Now, I'm told that of the critical care beds at the moment, 200 or so are occupied. There are apparently about 250 as a general rule in the whole area, which I'm sure uh, you, you would say sounds about right. However, uh, there is a capacity for 900 beds if necessary, um, without even having to go for the Nightingale scenario, which is another 5,000. So all of this kind of we're all going to be overwhelmed nonsense is exactly that. It's nonsense, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got to understand that the, the NHS um, uh, has, uh, has had to deal with 
usually it's been flu or other viruses have had to deal with outbreaks for years and and they come at pretty predictable time points so it's not going to be a, a sort of a flat number throughout the year they come in spikes at different time points um uh, one of which uh, it coincides uh, with this time of year but the bigger one is going to be uh, around january time uh, which is actually you know I think a bigger issue, uh, and so there there is what's called surge capacity, and that includes working in networks with other hospitals and creating ITU level bays in normal uh, or uh, medium uh, step down wards. Yeah. Um, you just need the machinery and the staffing there, and it, you you can make it as as has been shown with the creation of Nightingale Hospital. So you know it, it's it's not the case that we have this sort of set number and we're getting there, and then oh dear, we're overrunning, it's disaster. It, it, you know we it, we the the setup is there to be flexible, work in networks, so this precisely this issue is avoided at all costs. Exactly right, and also we but we're also told, Doctor Wackar, that uh, the the treatment now is better because the case Cases which are being taken into hospital are being taken in sooner rather than later because the testing system uh, is finding people quicker uh, and therefore dealing with the problems faster, therefore more, more chance of them actually recovering. So we're not exactly in the same place as we were back in March and April anyway. There's various there's various theories about this. I mean, obviously, there have been the publicised use of dexamethasone. I think um, also, I think there was a rush, um, I hear anecdotally, um, there was a bit of a rush to go too quickly to ventilators, uh, which caused other respiratory complications early. So people have learned, and they've learned rapidly over a short period of time. And so uh, it's certainly that looks to be the case, and the figures coming through that the, the outcomes are better. I, I think also um, people, um, the, the really, sadly to say, the really very vulnerable and sick, unfortunately, if they got COVID in the first wave, um, sadly it passed away. And so this is there's, there's there's the underlying susceptibility of a person as well as relevant yeah. to this. I no mean, what do you make of, of these people now, uh, Doctor, who are saying, oh, yeah, but it's all very well to just say the vulnerable, but actually the vulnerable covers about half the population. I've seen this argument now being made as yeah. the latest reason yeah. why we should lock down, that it's not just people maybe whose immune systems have been compromised, not just people suffering from cancer, not just people uh, who are over the age of, of 80. You know, they've, they've made this new kind of... Um, um, selection process, I suppose, if you like, putting more and more people into a vulnerable category because it makes it look worse. Yeah, I so, you know, potentially there's, you know, 15 to 20 million people uh, out there who've got a chronic disease of some description. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't... But if you look at the figures for uh, mortality, so people dying, uh, sadly dying with, with COVID, it's very clear yeah. where the risk lies. Uh, and that really is in the above 70, even above 80, but above 70, 75 population with at least one other health condition. But even even in that group, the uh, most people do actually recover. Yeah, uh, it's still uh, it's still a very significant uh, majority who still recover. So, uh, but it's very very clear the, the data that's been collected now where the true vulnerability lies. Yeah, and I think we've got to remember that you know, okay. Um, you know, it's fine to to be saying we're protecting people's lives, but you're also then taking away the, uh, their their ability to interact with friends, family, uh, enjoyment in life, and so on. And uh, I think that's a really serious. That's something that hasn't been really explored at all enough in people. Is that uh, do do the vulnerable, truly vulnerable, actually want this type of protection and and are actually happier for having this type of protection? Is you know they they still uh, even if they were to get a serious form of the, the condition, still more likely to survive. Mm. Well, I ask every day now for people to call me if they really want to have these lockdown measures imposed. And so far, uh, one of the uh, only two people who have called me to say so, one uh, wanted it because he ran a pub and he said my proper lockdown would actually get me compensation, whereas, you know, the tier two lockdown doesn't. Um, and the second one was it was an, an older gentleman uh, who said that he wanted to be made safe and therefore he wanted everybody to be told to stay at home. But look at these excess deaths in homes that you mentioned earlier from March the 14th to September the 11th. Tens of thousands of more uh, British people have died at home. Heart disease uh, fatalities themselves rocketing by a quarter. Now, these are proper statistical rises rather than the ones we're talking about, which are projected. 26% up heart disease deaths uh, on the five-year average. Lung cancer, 
29% up. Prostate cancer, 53% up. Uh, 29% up for uh, lung disease and bowel cancer, up 46%. I mean, these are incredible figures. I mean, what, what, do, what do people, uh, the scientists, advise in this and say, well, I think it's going to happen? Um, you know, uh, if you take away primary care to a large degree, maybe 27 million appointments fewer this right. year, this period than last year. And if you uh, start to run a, uh, a specialist health service, which is on the telephone at best or cancelled, uh, um, I think we've kind of pro- uh, proven a, an experiment, if you like, that we do actually need doctors and health professionals and our health is worse if we don't have them. Because, you know, what do you what do people expect? If you can't get medical attention, your 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 outcomes and deaths and so on rise. So we've kind of proven we need to provide a health service and we ought to be providing it. No, exactly right. I've got a question here from a listener called Vic who says, can you please ask Dr. Wakar about forthcoming vaccines and therapeutics? I'm not sure what that is. Trump likes Regeneron and Valence has high hopes for new RNA vaccines, he says. Yeah. I mean, it's been a bit of a sort of a... Um, a, a moving sort of calendar sort of thing, hasn't it? I, mm. I've written a couple of pieces um, on, online for The Spectator on viruses. And uh, initially there was uh, talk of September, October. That's clearly not going to happen. I, I think, you know, there's there was a bit of murmurings about one or two people or some groups having it ended this year. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think spring at the earliest. But I think what's increasingly coming out as well when you hear uh, some of the scientific advice is, is that it's not going to be a simple jab uh, for you know measles or whatever it may be that means you don't get the infection. This is going to be much more a case of something that's trying to build up immunity and may not give complete immunity. And the problem is as well with vaccines, and I, I'm very pro-vaccine, don't get me wrong, uh, but the problem, the problem is with vaccines is that in the most vulnerable people, so the very old and the immunosuppressed, they don't work as well because they're reliant on having a competent immune system to make an ideal response. And unfortunately, this is precisely the age group that are most at risk of COVID. So, uh, you know, they and, and I think that's why I, I saw Patrick Valence uh, say uh, in, in a press release uh, that um, even with a vaccine, this is not going to, uh, you know, and ultimately we need to live with this virus. Mm. And uh, the way you live with this virus is actually... Uh, trying to develop strategies where you actually live rather than hide from it indefinitely. Yeah, but unfortunately, nobody in the government seems to be taking that particular advice, Dr. Wekar. And as long as you've got people like Chris Bryant calling people like you crackpots, it's never going to happen, is it? Well, I think, uh, I, I don't know, I may, be in a, uh, I may be in a minority, but I actually think, uh, although I'm not in favour and uh, of the tier system, and I think what's being seen is it's, it's un- unnecessary in large part, but I actually think by... The government not going for this so-called circuit break lockdown actually was quite a significant thing because they were very strongly advised to do this by SAGE and they said no Mm. to SAGE. And it would have been very easy for them to have done a circuit break because they could have said, you know, to the people saying, why are you doing this? Well, we're following the science. That's what has been, you know, the the, the case for for months and months. We're going with the science. And they didn't do it. And so I think they're starting to cotton on that perhaps all the advice they're getting from SAGE isn't the most balanced advice. It's mm. fantastic advice if your uh, interest is in viral suppression and not worrying about the consequences. But they have to now govern and think of the consequences for everyone. I yeah. think possibly I saw signs that maybe they're starting to do that. I hope they are. Well, I hope so too, because for me, it's a bit like cancelling all buses on the grounds that you don't want one of them to be full up with people. And therefore, <laughs> let's just stop running buses so nobody gets to go anywhere. You know, the damage that's being done to the economy is palpable. It's very easy to see. The damage that's being done to people, I mean, that's the other thing that we keep being warned about, that, you know, oh, if we don't do something now, you know, other health services will be affected. Well, guess what? They're already affected. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 when you just see one side of the equation completely. And I think, you know, even when you talk uh, to or you hear people being questioned on SAGE or independent SAGE or whatever they are about, you know, the, the damaging effects of this, the, the standard response back is, well, if, if COVID gets out of control, everything falls apart. So right. you can see where the motivation is. It's 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 COVID, COVID. That's the thing. Uh, and if we let COVID get out of control, forget about the economy and other people's health. But uh, I think they, they um, are 
are really not balancing this. And I, I've said in various things in print and on Twitter that they need better, more broader representation on these panels. Well, they really do. And also, when you look at Liverpool and, and Wales soon to go into lockdown on Friday, if we get to the end of that period of two weeks or, you know, 14 days or 17 days, whatever it is, and the COVID rates have not gone down, what happens then? Yeah, I, I, I heard um, the, the Welsh Health Minister, uh, Von Geffen, yeah. uh, say he isn't actually expecting at the end of his, so we call it fire break lockdown, uh, rates to actually come down. And Well, you know, you then start to wonder, well, what is the point? Apart from, uh, it, particularly as um, there is damage to what is being advised. So uh, I guess the, the, the immediate um, uh, comeback you get is, oh, well, it would have been worse had we not done it. So, but you can't prove that. And, you know, it's a great, yeah. it's a great way to have an argument for saying, well, had we not done it, this and this would have happened without any evidence of proof. And it, it just seems we have to take it, take it at face value, really. I mean, I did say back in the beginning that, yeah, when uh, we were told we needed to save the NHS and therefore stop uh, the, the cases from, from overwhelming the NHS, that did appear to work. Uh, but Peter Hitchens always said to me, yeah, but how do you know that it wouldn't have been like that anyway? And the answer is you don't know. You don't know. That's, that's very true. But there were some very, very frightening and worrying stories come, uh, out there at the time. And so... Uh, I, I personally wasn't particularly. I, I just don't see the scientific merit of lockdown as a as a theory anyway. But right. uh, a, you know, two three week period, if we were really concerned and, and it, you know it was bad, it was bad. Then you know you kind of get where they're coming from with that. But then it, you know it's just spiraled out of control, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, don't say that anywhere near Chris Bryant because uh, he may have something uh, rather nasty to say to you as a result. Dr. Wakar Rashid, thank you very much indeed. Consultant neurologist, MS specialist, not in favour of lockdowns, still very sensible. Uh, he would be called a crackpot by Chris Bryant, disgracefully. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, uh, who's an award-winning analytical leader, according to his Twitter account. He is, in fact, former head of health analysis at the Office of National Statistics. Jamie, welcome. Very good morning to you. Um, morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, you've got a fascinating background in statistics, and I think you are sorely needed at this particular juncture because uh, I'm getting very frustrated being shown a load of numbers and figures that I frankly don't think uh, are backed up by facts. So what we can see, if you look at Wales, for example, I mean, you can look at England as well, but what we can see is that through September, we did see a slight uptick in the number of patients on ventilators in Wales. and. Right currently stands around 30 patients now the first minister of wales yesterday was saying that uh, critical care in wales is at capacity uh, but if you actually look at the numbers and the 30 patients we've actually got 100 beds vacant at the moment in wales right. and the 30 uh, people who are on uh, ventilated beds at the moment now that hasn't increased for the last two weeks now for each and every one of them that's on a ventilator at the moment that's worrying for the families and sure. fingers crossed for their recovery but we're not seeing an acceleration in the number of people on intensive care beds at the moment. And, and that's got to be a positive, I think. Well, I think so. And also looking at the numbers of deaths, I think I'm right in saying that certainly for the past week, possibly two weeks, the numbers have been in single figures, haven't they? Yeah. So deaths are running relatively low at the moment. They've increased slightly, but we know that some of the deaths in Wales over the past few weeks have been linked to an outbreak in the, the hospital that's actually local to where I live, oh, right. the Royal Morgan Hospital which is the uh, local hospital as well of Chris Bryant, the MP, that's been talking about the, the figures oh, of the yeah. hospitalisation. Our favourite Labour MP here at Talk Radio, he's the guy that thinks anyone who doesn't want a lockdown, even if they're medically qualified, is a crackpot. Well, um, that's obviously Chris's opinion on regards to all of that. But if we focus on the deaths then, they are relatively low and some of the outbreaks in the Royal Glamorgan Hospital affected that. There's a number of facts and figures that really I think the, the public need to understand here. So... Uh, if you go back a month ago, about 2.2% of people being tested for COVID in, in Wales were coming back positive. And that has increased quite a lot over the last uh, month or so. So so the Welsh Government, uh, you could argue, using that evidence would warrant to do some more measures because the restrictions that are in place aren't working. However, just looking at the cases themselves, that only tells you part of the story. So we know that 70% of the cases in the latest week for Wales well, for people under 50, yeah. we know that there were double the number of cases among 10 to 19 year olds than there were among 60 to 69 year olds. And then if you put that in relation to the deaths that you've talked about, we also know that uh, only 1% of deaths have actually occurred in people aged under 45. So, so the relative risk of death for the cases that have been kind of the most prominent in Wales at the moment is relatively low. Mm. 
And that's an important distinction, I think, that you make. And if it has gone up, say, from 2.5% to, say, 5%, and they can then say, well, look, you know, we've got double the number of cases. Well, first of all, you've only got double the number of infections, and you don't know if any of those people are ill. And that's the bit that they also don't tell us. You've also then got 95% of people who don't have any problem at all. So you're kind of going, all right, well, now let's look at this graph, because I noticed that on your Twitter you've got um, um, an interesting graph in which uh, the projection says that the worst-case scenario is going to happen sometime between um, sort of December, Christmas, December the 25th and 25th of January. But the flat line is going from July to August to September, rising slightly uh, through the 25th of October, but not really doing anything interesting until way uh, ahead into the future, which is obviously a projection and a model. So Swans University have come up with that model, and I've tried looking into kind of the more detail on that, but I've been struggling to find out the full detail of it. And what it's projecting, actually, is the number of hospital admissions in Wales will be about three times what it was back at the height of the pandemic in April. Now, what we do know now is there's a virus out there, so you'd expect that the measures that are in place in terms of social distancing and with regards to... Uh, there's better treatments, etc. You'd expect things with local lockdowns where there are restrictions for the numbers to potentially be lower. We do know, though, that there is always increased hospital admissions during during the winter months. But it does seem kind of it's a worst case scenario. It yeah. seems quite an extreme worst case scenario for it just to kind of suddenly accelerate and you go back into the end of November. And, and I've also been looking at the um, the Office for National Statistics figures for Wales on on employment. So I think at the moment in the pandemic we are at that. It's kind of part where we know the furlough payments are coming to an end at the end of October. Mm. And if you look at the actual data with regards to Wales, that since the lock- after the first lockdown, uh, 30,000 people kind of lost their jobs in Wales. And that doesn't even include the impact of the self-employed. So so there's evidence that you need some further restrictions if you want to curb the, the kind of the virus in terms of its spread. We know that it's spreading more uh, kind of at the moment in Wales. However, there's the wider economic impacts. There's the number of jobs that are being lost. That, you know, obviously, that's going to probably go up in the winter months as yeah. well as the furlough comes to an end. There's all these other factors mm. that need to be thought about when you're deciding you know, whether you're going to have a lockdown or whether you have restrictions or right. not. But that's interesting as well, because as a statistician, I mean, you know, I could draw one of those graphs. So Patrick Valance did one similar uh, in which he said there would be 50,000 infections a day uh, by November unless we did something, right? And he then later admitted that they just kind of drew that because they thought that might scare people. Now, this one, looks as if it's been drawn by the same hand you know because it goes blah, 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 and it suddenly goes like that i mean i could do that what i don't see and what i've never seen jamie is a projection of what's going to happen to the infection rate if we do have a lockdown because i don't know why they don't want to show us that well that's one of the challenges i think we're going to have now is that they've used this chart and the projection to kind of justify why we need a lockdown and an urgent circuit break or fire break in wales right but actually in implementing that policy itself then means that you can never work out if that projection will happen because they you can obviously say that, well, we were never going to achieve that now because we implemented the fire break. So yeah. it's one of those situations where you use some data to justify a policy and then use the policy to say why the data would never you know, happen right. in the first place. Because most and people, I mean, difficult. yeah, I mean, most people who are sceptical of lockdowns would say, well, you know, um, what's the um, the likelihood that as soon as the lockdown is over, um, the, the infection rate will go up again as soon as people start going out of their houses, which is a pretty much a given, isn't it? Well, the virus isn't going to go away, and we know that. And until we get another vaccine, we know also that you, you're kind of right there, that it's kind of like playing a pause button on the actual video mm. that you're watching, and yeah. then you come back, and then it starts again. Right. I suppose people who would argue for a lockdown would say that we're better off pausing the button so we can get over that massive peak in the winter. Right. That would be the arguments price was for the lockdown. But then you've also got, say, the economic arguments that pressing the pause and all of the kind of the economic fallout of all of that. And that's going to hit people at the exact same time at the furlough schemes coming to an end. Yeah. So until we have a vaccine, uh, locking down kind of inevitably just pauses things and they'll continue to go on and on and on as we go forward. But why do you think, Jamie, and I know this is maybe a health question that you may not feel qualified to answer, but why do you think that suddenly there's this obsession uh, with trying to control this particular virus? Because I accept that it's not like flu. I accept that it does really, really damage some people quite badly, although albeit a smallish number. But there's an awful lot of people die from flu every year. and We don't get told, don't go outside, you know, don't go to work, work from home. Nobody says any of that about flu, and yet it de- it does kill a lot of people. 
Well, if you go back to March, we, it is quite clear from the kind of the official data that there was a mass number of excess deaths. But in part, that was um, assisted uh, in, in a kind of a tragic way by care homes and yes. we didn't know about the virus. And, mm. and a lot of people who were elderly um, were dying because of the virus there. And I think kind of the, the politicians, the ministers and, and many members of the public can still remember the kind of the pandemic back in April, which is why there's these measures that they're always thinking in terms of curbing the virus. But you're right, um, you've only got to go back a few years ago. The flu vaccine in the UK wasn't as effective as it one would like. And we saw quite a large number of excess deaths in the winter months just a few years ago. And you, you, you're kind of right with regards to that, that we do have an impact. Uh, again, the other argument would be that we do have a flu vaccine, so it does protect the vulnerable more and we don't have a vaccine for COVID. So there is obviously more of an obsession with COVID to kind of curb it because we're not entirely sure where we're heading with, with the virus. Mm. But I think the, the current data wouldn't lend itself. Like if you take hospital admissions and the hospitalizations in Wales, apart from one health board, uh, which is the Cum Taf health board, which is in the area I live, where we've seen some of the outbreaks, many um, hospital areas across Wales haven't seen much of a change in hospital admissions over the past uh, kind of month. So when you're using that data to putting a national lockdown, you can kind of see why there's quite a lot of anger among some people, yeah. rightly or wrongly, whether or not we should lock down West Wales when we know, for example, it's much, much lower there than it is in the Welsh Valleys, for example. Yeah, right. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. My last question, Jamie, as a, as a, as a, as a resident of Wales, what are people saying about this and, and what are they prepared to do? Because obviously, you know, in parts of Britain, uh, parts of England, certainly, uh, people haven't exactly adhered to what they've been told to do. Well, you can see on social media and from friends I talk to, there's there's obviously a lot of anger for it, but there's also a lot of positivity. So it, it's, it's kind of reminds me a bit like Brexit all over again with Remain and <laughs> Leave. You've about. got two different opposing opinions and there's valid arguments for both. I think for me, where or I look at it more from an evidence-based perspective, and I wouldn't say the evidence would lend itself that you should have the exact same restrictions across the whole of Wales. However... Um, one who is supportive of a lockdown probably would say that if everybody's in it together and they're the same restric restrictions are in place, you're more likely to get that. And if you actually focus just briefly before I finish on England, um, you can see that hospital admissions in the northwest uh, of England are eight times faster, or higher, sorry, and going up faster than they are in the south of England, in the southeast. So mm. again, there's talk, um, I think, from Keir Starmer to have a national lockdown for the whole of the UK, including England there. But the data would suggest there's definitely an acute problem in the northwest of England, not so much in the southeast, but a lockdown would impact economically on all areas. Mm. No, exactly right. Jamie, listen, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. I'm sure we'll do it again. Jamie Jenkins, their former head of health analysis at the Office for National Statistics, with some statistics which would suggest that this graph, for example, I'm going to retweet it uh, in a moment. This graph that has been produced about COVID hospital admissions it's basically just, you know, stick a, a number in the air, double it, uh, triple it, and then draw a graph and take the, the final part of the graph up to the top. I mean, you know, where have we seen that before? Tell me. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers 
providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there's always an awful lot to talk about on this show, and I'm very pleased to say that we're now going to talk about an awful lot of things with Esther Cracker. Esther, welcome back. Nice Thank to see you. Thank you for having me. Not <laughs> at all. Welcome back to your uh, to your regular slot now. I'm looking at uh, uh, an email that I've just received from uh, one of my retail uh, people that uh, send me emails from time to time, saying, time to time saying, Halloween at home this year? Well, where else are you going to be doing it? I mean, there's yeah. not going to be much trick-or-treating going on. Prepare to scare yourself silly, they say. <laughs> Make your own haunted house. Oh, gosh. I mean, no, I, I'm sorry. I'm not that invested in Halloween. I'm really not that invested in Halloween yeah. either. But it is going to be a pretty scary time, apparently, according it's, to uh, the government. It's, it's more American than anything. I, don't, I hardly see trick-or-treaters in this country. You don't. You really don't. I mean, they've tried to make it into a massive thing, but yeah. I'm not I'm not really buying it. But uh, but the bonfire nights have all been cancelled. You know, fireworks yeah. have all been cancelled. Poor old Sadiq Khan uh, has now said that he can't organise a firework display because it might be dangerous uh, for people to catch. Because we're outdoors. And it's really cold yeah and therefore you know somehow it might be the wrong thing but let's start off let's kick off with uh, with trump versus biden because yeah. it's been an interesting week there's been a lot of rallies um it's been quite good natured i haven't really heard anything terrible being said by trump but of course it's been um... also dominated by uh, this ridiculous uh, row over the story in the new york post mm, about yeah. about hunter biden and his connections with the ukraine and lots lots of allegations being thrown around yeah and emails being leaked and all the rest yeah. of it um so hmm the whole Trump and Biden thing—it just these these the, this week is very crucial for for both of them, but especially Trump because he has a lot of ground to make up. Obviously, yeah. now you know they've set the debate and they're saying they're going to mute microphones. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to work exactly. But then that's not a d- debate. Mm. Yeah, I, it's not a debate, right? The nature of a debate is to go back and forth. Yes, that's, that's what people tune in into. I think both of them need to show a bit more restraint. Yeah, um, I'm very interested to see who the moderators are going to be for this particular debate, but it's it's very crucial for both of them. Yeah, um, I I don't think the microphone thing is like. It's not. It's not. No, it's not. It's not critical. But I suppose the problem is, is that there are some. It might actually help Trump because there are some who said after the last one, Mm. and even Nigel Farage said that he might have been a little bit too uh, over enthusiastic about interrupting because he just wanted to to set Biden off on his on his on his heels and just not let him have an opportunity to say anything, which at times didn't look great. But I think one thing. Uh, you know, muting microphones will be will become social media fodder. Mm. So if you have Trump popping off, and you know, have, it's kind of like a DJ Khaled moment at the MTV Awards like ten years ago. I'm pretty sure you don't remember. Unfortunately, that was my generation. I don't know. Yeah, it's but he was, he, was, that. he was just going off about how he's the greatest, and then they muted his microphone, and he was still going off. Right, and that became a social media me moment. Right. You don't want that, Trump, because no. people already take the Mickey out of you. Anyway. Well, the other thing that Trump might do is he, he, he as he did against Hillary Clinton, he started walking around. Do you remember? And he, yeah, uh, he walked at one point. He actually <laughs> <laughs> appeared behind her which was quite weird yeah. and strange yeah like a ninja yeah, like, yeah very very odd um but i suppose again he has to be careful but you're right it, it sort of depends on who's moderating it yeah. and, and and what the point system is going to be but he seems to be catching up with biden a little bit and biden's own mm. people are now saying you know let's not take any let's go out and vote. yeah because i mean the big vote is going to be in in one or two or maybe three states, states the yeah. rest of it doesn't matter i mean it doesn't matter because of the way the weird way the system works, it doesn't matter how many people vote for Biden in California. Mm. You know, the whole of California can vote for him. It's still just one state. One state, yeah. That's I think that's the beauty of the electoral college system. I, yeah. That I really admire the the uh, sort of. Uh, the political system in the US, even though it's a bit of a... a do you think a, that's a, better than... Do you prefer the fact that it's state by state rather yeah, than no, by definitely. numbers? Yeah, no, definitely. Absolutely. I think I think that's a... It, it makes sense because that's the nature of a union. Everyone mm. should have an equal voice. I think, like you said, Trump only... Like, he needs three states. Pennsylvania, yeah. Ohio... Ohio, and Michigan, Michigan, probably. I think Pennsylvania, because of the fracking thing, I think it's a pretty safe bet for him. Um, Ohio, mm, farmers, we'll see. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, I think he got Ohio last time because Hillary yeah. didn't even bother going there. Yeah, exactly. And she said, just thought it was in the bag, so yeah. thought there's no reason to go. And, uh, you know, Biden has the disadvantage that uh, that Hillary didn't in the sense that um, he's not as unlikable as Hillary, but mm. he inspires zero passion. Yeah. That, I mean, I think, I mean, every Democrat that I speak to says, well, you know, yeah, we know he's not a great candidate, but, you know, of course we have to vote for him. He's not alive. He's a corpse. <laughs> well, he doesn't seem terribly, um, terribly active. Let's put it that way. I, I just call him the corpse. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and but, but of course, a lot of people think that if he did win, Kamala mm. Harris would then more yeah. or less become the de facto president 
after a very short period of time. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the thing that, you know, this is where the Democrats have shot themselves in the foot a little bit because they chose the most unlikable candidate for the black community. Mm. And I, I'm assuming now they're trying to pass off what it really is an Indian woman as a mm. black woman. Yeah. Um, so that's that's not very good in terms of trying to, you know, sweep up the minorities they were hoping yeah. to do with that move. That brings us back in a way to Black Lives Matter because mm. it's unclear to me that if you are not actually black, um, you know, African-American uh, or Caribbean uh, based, that are, are you involved in Black Lives Matter? I mean, if you're an yeah. a, what we would call an Asian woman or an Asian man from the Indian subcontinent, are, are you part of Black Lives Matter or is that um, not allowed? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the kind of, uh, I suppose, cognitive dissonance of this movement. But, you know, if you're looking at Black Lives Matter just in terms of its popularity in the US, it has plummeted mm. since the whole riots and the Yes. and everything it has really plummeted so again that's another thing that shot the democrats in the foot because that's something they were hoping to go off of the whole yeah. while of you know this uh, i suppose supercharged identity yes. politics game so and that's, I think that's a huge worry yeah because i think the people kind of in the middle are fed up with the extremists aren't mm. they and they just want to go back to where it was before yeah where the left wing wasn't particularly left wing i, mean, I was always amazed when i when i was in america in the in the sort of 80s that america was not really left wing or right wing right it was yeah. i mean both the, the democrats and the republicans you couldn't choose much between them really. yeah you know it was all just a question of which personality you preferred yeah and uh now it's a it's more polarized which i suppose i i prefer because you can really distinguish between candidates and you you know it, it's a lot clearer but at the same time it's like it's more extreme yeah. you know one thing people have to realize is the no law enforcement have um, endorsed Joe Biden, which is a huge problem. That is. Following, you know, the summer of rioting, yeah. basically. So. Right, yeah. yeah. So it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next... Uh next couple of weeks but yeah. as I say we'll be bringing it live to everybody uh, on the night as well so that'll be interesting but I don't think I'm being told that we probably won't get any kind of result at all mm. uh, until maybe a couple of days later maybe three days later uh, and in fact I saw a story the other day that said that Trump even if he loses can somehow run again I'm not quite yeah. sure how that yeah, works yeah that I don't know how I mean have they looked through the constitution <laughs> I don't think that, that's exactly how it works I mean I would imagine if Donald Trump loses he'll just uh, if, he, if he decides he wants to try and fight the fact that it was an illegal election or something yeah. he might do that but he'll probably just go away and go back and make some more money won't he yeah he'll just go into me i mean if, if trump there's, loses fox news should be very worried well there's a lot of talk <laughs> that he's going to start up his own channel isn't yeah, there? yeah. we shall see now he's a man of course who's been accused of all manner of things uh, regarding women mm, um yeah. let's talk about john leslie who's on the front pages today you're probably too young to remember john leslie when he was a blue peter presenter yeah um, definitely <laughs> but, you know this is a guy who was outed wrongly as it mm. turns out by matthew wright yeah. on the matthew wright show uh, on tv as the man who had been um, supposedly accused of the raping rape, Ulrika, yeah. Ulrika Johnson. She'd written about it in her book, but she never said who it was. Mm. Now, it turns out it wasn't John Leslie, but the yeah. fact that he had been deliberately outed um, on television, his life has never really been, been the same. same yeah. And I mean, while I'm not going to say that he's not a seedy character, because I think he is, um, you know, he's in, he's in court yesterday getting cleared of something that was supposed to have happened 12 years ago. Of grabbing and I mean, of yeah, boobs, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, who knows whether he did it or not. The fact is he's been found not guilty, so we should say that he didn't do it. Mm. Um, but imagine how that must feel. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, no matter how horrible the guy is, it must be awful to have to go through something like that for that length of time. And, you know, the jury only deliberated for 23 minutes. Mm. I mean, that, that that is quite telling. This is my issue with... I suppose this goes back to the whole Me Too movement. Yeah. But this is my issue with, you know, the fact that the media has no boundaries and lacks sensitivity when it comes to you know sexual assault allegations yeah. on both sides right. I really don't think that you should be able to publish sexual assault allegations on any public figure mm. and that's not to say that if they're found guilty you shouldn't do that yeah you should do it when they're found guilty because honestly it's just so unfair right. I, and it, it really scares me because I have a brother if he was supposed to be sort of a top level athlete yeah. and was falsely accused of sexual assault that's the end of his career Well, because it, it doesn't. It, I mean regardless of whether you get found innocent it yeah. tends to stick with the person exactly. Yeah, that's the problem. So you would favour a kind of a system whereby if there's an accusation made, both yeah. parties remain anonymous yeah. until the end. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's really difficult because the media like to jump on anything. Yeah. And obviously, it's very saucy when some, you, you out someone as effectively a degenerate. Yeah. But that that is something that I really think we should just draw the line on. Well, I mean, without getting into the detail of it, we saw that in Parliament, didn't we, when mm. um, an MP was accused of rape by somebody. Yeah. Um, and then there were all sorts of people saying, well, we must suspend this person. Yeah, he must leave Parliament. Um, which one is, is, is wrong because first of all you then identify the person mm. second of all that then might help to identify the victim who's a me who's meant to remain anonymous so yeah. i don't know what's actually happening with that case but but you know it's a very tricky area yeah i think that that's that's something that 
both parties have a lot to lose. Mm. I don't think the media should be able to overstep that boundary. No. And it's the same thing with publishing, like, you know, children's pictures and stuff like that. It's very sensitive. Yeah, you know. it really is. I mean, this, the, the headline on the front of the mail, uh, can Le John Leslie's re reputation ever recover? Well, I think the well, answer is no. no, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and, and it's, this is the thing. It's a fickle business. Once your name is attached to something, it's very hard to shake it off. Right. I mean, in his case, he does have a bit of a timeline. October yeah. 2002, wrongly identified as, on TV as the man who wrote to Rika Johnson. December 2002, arrested over claims of indecent assault in 1997, but charges are dropped. June 2008, arrested over a rape and assault allegation from 1995, which didn't go to court. Yeah. And it's all this historical stuff as yeah. well, isn't it? Because that's the other problem that we've seen um, in, in showbiz, generally speaking, over the years, that people have been accused of doing things uh, quite rightly sometimes accused, uh, yeah. but in other cases, not always. But Pete, the public seems to sort of want to believe the uh, the complainant. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's our natural instinct. You know, we want to you want to kind of side on be on the side of the victim because then you don't feel like a horrible person. But mm. you know, we often forget that there's someone on the other side who hasn't actually been found guilty, who has a lot to lose, yes. sometimes even more to lose. Right. And um, you know, I, I just I think that's a boundary that shouldn't be crossed. At no, all. and I think I suppose I mean it's difficult to legislate. I suppose for it in yeah. the sense that no, um, it's fairly simple. Just you know, tell there are there are plenty of people out there that will make false allegations as well. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, if if some stuff like that is amplified by the mainstream media, you know, there are people that could say, I, I hit a baby today, you know, that's fine. You can just say what you want. But, yeah. you know, if it's not amplified by voices that are supposed to have credibility in society, it doesn't do as much damage. But we do live now in times when you've got the sort of snoop brigade, haven't you? Yeah. Because they're being encouraged to snoop on each other by the government. So, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, there's all sorts of people out there ready. Um, I mean, if you become very well known there'll be people watching you and when they see you out in a restaurant or if they see you out in a shop if you're ever allowed to go out to another restaurant yeah, yeah, um, exactly. you know they might you know well look at we saw you know she said she didn't drink we saw her drinking a bottle of wine on her own it might not be true I mean, if you have evidence, it, everyone has a camera phone these, these days. So if you have evidence, that's where you kind of get tripped up. But I think with the whole like sort of sexual assault thing, there's 50 percent of this country is male. Yeah. There's a whole group of people that would actually support that as well, because they're, they're, they're often the ones that are, have a lot to lose. Yeah. You know, I mean, an awful lot of footballers, of course. Are exactly. Cristiano Ronaldo and stuff yeah. like that, who really didn't want to settle right. with that lunatic that was accusing him of rape. But, but then, of course, you then get the other side of the, the, the battle where you get mm. people say, oh, well, he paid her off. Yeah. So he must have been guilty. You see, it's and that's the thing. It's it's very uncomfortable to be in that situation in the mm. first place. We shouldn't be able to have any say on that. This man has children. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, one more story that I want to touch upon with you before mm. uh, we let you go. Climate change scientists take more work and leisure flights <laughs> than colleagues in other fields. Now, yeah. who would have known such a thing? Now, this is, is this this coincides with the apparent release of a new movie mm. with Greta Thunberg in it. Yeah, which um, I will not be seeing. I won't be paying to see it. That's for sure. I mean, if somebody wants me to look at it just because they want me to look at it. But I mean, it's kind of unusual to release a movie uh, when a the cinemas are all closed as yeah. well I mean who's going to I mean yeah it? there's that I mean yeah and the, the movie industry is trying to find a way around that I think they're ch uh, you know increasing the prices of films so that if just one person watches it kind of subsidizes too yeah. I don't know that, that's something that I, I read about um, I think the Greta Thunberg movie is absolutely ridiculous yeah. what 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 like how did a 16 year old autistic girl with virtually no education virtually no education in right. science or what she's talking about become the voice of you know, climate, I don't know, like fear-mongering. Is it not because you can see um, pollution or something like that, or see carbon see, in oh the Oh, yeah, in the air. You know, I just wish there was, like, you know, a Japanese trans-Muslim boy with Down syndrome to say climate change is not real and they could do all out because it's, it's kind of effectively like well, a battle of identity politics. I put out a tweet about this uh, that I wouldn't be watching the film and so mm. I got the usual kind of you stop attacking a child. You know, she's yeah. apart from the fact she's now 17 yeah. which is not a child. Far from, far from a child, You know, yeah. when, you're, when you're 17 you can actually choose um, the method of of, uh, of of whatever it is that you want to do in all sorts of different areas, you know, on your own without your parents, right? Yeah. Um, but the problem I think as well is that, you know, People have sort of bought into this climate change thing. It's 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 only really been interrupted by COVID. I mean, Boris Johnson yeah. seems incredibly sure that he wants to turn Britain into some green and green. pleasant land, and and you know, place full of wind farms and people cycling around everywhere. Those ugly it's things, never going to yeah. happen. Yeah, and you know, Prince Philip is always telling. Is it Prince Philip? Uh, Prince Charles. Charles, yeah, he's always like, we have ten years, then we have two years, yeah. then we have eighteen months. Right. It's just you know, it's it's permeated all aspects of society, and we are not actually having an objective view of this. Yes, the climate is changing. Yes, human activity has a lot to do with it. You know, we need human ingenuity is 
inf- infamous for being able to solve problems that we yeah. don't think we can solve. It should come down to that, not just you know making us pay more money to effectively an incompetent government. Right. Because well, that's what it is. Well, it's all you've got to do is look around the streets of London, where Sadiq Khan has, thankfully, mm. uh, for the eco lobbyists, you know, managed to make loads and loads of cycle lanes to reduce congestion mm. and to get rid of all the pollution. Guess it's what? It's worsened. It's actually worse pollution and worse congestion yep. because now there's people stuck in traffic jams all day, um, pumping out terrible, horrible exhaust fumes. And it actually makes me resent cyclists. <laughs> well, it I'm does. Like, I don't. I don't drive in London anymore because obviously of Sadiq Khan. But right. whenever I drive in London and I, I just get this close to hitting a cyclist, I'm yeah. like, Ugh. I wouldn't feel bad, but I'm not going to do it. No, I mean, I watch them every morning as, mm. as I come into work. And, you know, there are some that adhere to the rules and they stop at the lights. Oh, they're when just they're a red. complete nuisance. But there are always loads who do not. And there are loads who don't actually use the cycle lanes anyway. They just I use... Just, I, don't, I don't care whether they... I know this is a bit of a radical, but honestly, they're just a complete nuisance. If you're cycling in a congested city like London, you probably have a death wish. Well, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. I, I just, you know... Gosh... Can't you go to Richmond Park or something? Yeah, exactly. That would make a lot of sense. It really would. Yeah. Well, listen, Esther, great to see you again. Thank, Thank you very you much indeed. Me. We shall see you same time next week. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I don't know whether any of you saw uh, a picture yesterday that was doing the rounds uh, of one Gary Lineker. You might remember St. Gary Lineker. This is the guy uh, who works for the BBC, gets paid almost £2 million a year by the BBC uh, and, of course, thinks that that entitles him to have a view on almost everything under the sun. He, of course, is completely and utterly exempt from the new rules of the BBC, uh, which suggest that if you are a BBC presenter, you should really not be giving out your views on politics because the new uh, uh, Director General, Tim Davey, has actually said that. He's also said that Gary Lineker is exempt from it. Picture of him on the front page of the Daily Star. It was out on Twitter last night of Gary Lineker in a shop wearing no mask. Now, this wouldn't matter mostly to most people were it not for the fact that he tweeted out on july the 14th why would anyone object to wearing a mask in a shop it's not exactly a hardship what a country of snowflakes we have become here's the picture in case you haven't seen it uh you can see he's very clearly standing in a shop without wearing a mask now i'm not gonna give him a hard time for not wearing a mask because some people don't like wearing masks however most people who don't like wearing masks don't tell everybody else to start wearing one that's the hypocrisy of the man By the way, has anybody noticed that even now, some months after making his first pronouncement about adopting an illegal migrant, an asylum seeker, somebody coming on a dinghy from France, he still hasn't managed to find one. He still hasn't managed to actually get the process sorted out so that he can, in fact, house an illegal migrant. All he's got to do is pop down to Dover, where we are told there are still hundreds and hundreds of people arriving every single day. But Gary somehow hasn't managed to find somebody. He hasn't managed to identify anyone and he hasn't managed to house anyone. So maybe it was all smoke and mirrors after all. Maybe it was all just virtue signalling. Could it be, Gary, that that is the case? I'd like to communicate with Gary Lineker about this, but of course he's blocked me on Twitter uh, because I asked him about uh, whether he was paying a reasonable amount of tax on the earnings that he made from Walker's crisps while telling everybody that they should eat healthily, of course. Here's what he said yesterday after he was found out walking around in a shop without a mask on, which is technically an offence, right? In my old age, I went into a store, he calls it, a store. Oh, you're American now, Gary. Went into a store and forgot to put my mask on. Forgot to put his mask on. Was wondering why people were giving me daggers. Realised after a couple of minutes and hastily put it on. Felt awful and embarrassed. Apologies to those present. Well, I'm sorry. Apology not accepted, Mr Lineker. If you're going to start being uh, a hypocrite, then an apology is not going to be enough. I think you should make a very large donation to a charity of my choice. That's what I think you should do. And when on earth are you going to do what you said you were going to do, which is to give some shelter to an illegal migrant? Because it's now looking like it's never going to happen, I'm afraid. What an absolute plank. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very good afternoon to Dr. Rakib Hassan from the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism. He's written a piece in The Telegraph uh, today about the whole business uh, of that terrible, terrible thing that happened uh, in Paris. There have been marches in the streets of Paris. It hasn't been covered massively 
by the press in this country, strangely enough. But there have been massive reactions over in France uh, because this young man uh, was was allowed to or was able to behead a teacher in broad daylight, effectively, uh, just because he was advocating free speech. Dr. Rakeem, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us on this one. A terrible, awful event, um, well, the like of which we thought maybe we'd seen the back of. Um, you've written a piece in which you say that we should be massively wary now of, of, of this kind of thing. Tell us why. Well, I think that in the piece that I authored for The Telegraph, I said that it should be a wake-up call for the rest of Europe. Mm. Uh, I felt that uh, this terrorist attack, it, this was not simply a gruesome murder of a school teacher. I felt that it was a vicious attack on the in- integrity of the French Republic, its long and rich history of secularism. And it does it does speak to broader issues of sovereignty. Who, who is uh, who decides what can be said in the public realm? What kind of materials are used in schools? Uh, to what extent should uh, religious sensitivities be respected in the in the social mainstream mm. so i feel that you know countries that th- th- these are just not uh, problems in france when we're looking at the threat of islamist separatism th- these are also uh, problems in the uk in germany and other european countries and i do feel that for too long political classes within those different countries they haven't taken this issue seriously enough, uh, or rather that they, they're just they're just reluctant because of the sensitivities which surround uh, the, the, these kind of social problems. Sure, and interesting that uh, this kid came from Chechnya because up until I suppose that murder last Friday, um, Chechnya had kind of gone out of everybody's consciousness, hadn't it? And we'd almost forgotten that there was a very bloody war waged there, a civil war mm. uh, between the Russian state uh, and Islamic uh, separatists in Chechnya who were trying to make it into an Islamic state. Well, I'd make the point there that I feel when we're talking about the broader political culture in Western Europe, I think that mainstream politicians, they've almost overindulged um, in pursuing socially liberal policies, especially when it comes to immigration, uh, refugee asylum policy, uh, social integration, uh, social cohesion. And they, they fail to understand the risks involved if there are unsuccessful integration outcomes among individuals who come from you know you know unstable and vastly different cultural and religious contexts to integrate if there's a failure to integrate those individuals into conventional liberal democratic society mm-hmm. then you have a very serious problem on your hands when it comes to community relations in modern day european uh, societies exactly right and you were saying as well um that there was a speech that um, emmanuel macron made back in october mm-hmm. i think in which he said that he was going to address this whole islamic separatist issue because france does have a big problem doesn't it well, I, I say that France certainly does have a big problem. So if I just give you some uh, statistics uh, or survey data, rather, there was a survey of uh, French Muslims back in 2016. Uh, 29% of the French Muslim uh, French Muslims polled said that ultimately the sort of Islamic moral and legal code Sharia, it, it felt it was more important for them to follow that um, as opposed to French secular law. Mm. Now, in that survey, a quarter of the respondents were classified as hardliners. So these are usually young people who lived in the outskirts of cities, uh, low skilled, not particularly well integrated in the French labour market, who are supportive of the wearing of the burqa, polygamy and the general supremacy of Islamic law. So you do see that there are very serious problems there when you're looking at it's almost it's almost a construction of a counter society. Mm. Um, in France, and you see the, the kind of the sort of religious authoritarianism there, it, it, it directly contradicts uh, the French secular law and you know the, the sort of principle of laicite. Uh, France is formally stated as a secular republic in Article One of its own constitution. So you see that, that there's these competing tensions here. Mm. So uh, President Macron's speech, it's, it, uh, well, they say that timing is everything in politics. And, you know, fast forward just a, just, just a few days after that speech, we have this terrifying Islamist terrorist attack in the northwestern suburbs of Paris. 
Well, this is it. And I mean, if you remember back to the Bataclan um, atrocity, so many of the people involved in that uh, who did the shooting had come from that, uh, that that town over in Belgium, uh, which is more or less a no-go zone for the police, where it was basically, you know, 100% kind of Islamic uh, fundamentalists who were kind of running it. And it was a very dangerous place. I don't even know if that still exists, whether that's been changed, whether that's been addressed. But certainly um, it looked like a very dangerous place four or five years ago. Well, Mike, I made the I made the point that uh, in my piece for the Telegraph that in the post-COVID world, mm. uh, Europe's leaders really have to get together, uh, understand the threat of Islamist separatism um, in their in their country in their you know specific countries, and what kind of collective action can be taken to reduce reduce that threat. Uh, also, you know, how what ways. Uh, you know, what kind of policy approaches can be taken to significantly reduce public support within segregated um, communities for, you know, deeply uh, authoritarian ideologies, which, which, which run di- directly run counter to conventional liberal democratic norms. And I think that's something that needs to be prioritised and that should be at the heart of social policy across a number of European countries. Well, something that you also um, were were remarking upon, which amazed me, was the the, not very many, but several kind of academics, uh, Islamic Mm. academics in this country, who basically were calling for the closing down of Charlie Hebdo magazine on the basis that it was too provocative and somehow offensive to Muslims as though having a magazine was equated to murdering people. Well, I'd make the point that if you close down a particular publisher, that that's not going to automatically improve social cohesion in the French Republic. Uh, the, the reality of the matter is if you were to take on that kind of action, you'd only serve to embolden Islamist extremist elements within the French Muslim population. Thereby, you'd actually be weakening patriotic reformist um, figures within the uh, French Muslim population as well. Yeah, but I'm oh, talking about people, yeah. academics in this country, Ricky. Oh yeah, well, I think it? that we also we also have we've had um, Muslim figures in the UK who've called for the shutting down of uh, Charlie uh, Hebdo, and I, I'd really make the point that it, whether it's in France, the UK, Germany, if you go down the road of banning particular publishers, banning uh, specific materials you run the risk of generating a cultural backlash in the secular-minded mainstream. You embolden Islamist extremist elements within the broader Muslim population in countries of Europe. And you also you would also empower hard-right political factions who, you know, that they provide these arguments of uh, their societies running the risk of being, you know, suffering some kind of uh, Islamist takeover. Mm. So the idea that if you take these kind of actions, you would improve social cohesion outcomes. I'm sorry, Mike, that, that is quite laughable. Yeah, well, it is, absolutely. Yeah. It is absolutely laughable. But, I mean, as long as we've got people in uh, places like the University of Durham who are calling mm. for this kind of thing to happen... Um, and basically saying that it's uh, an absolute insult to an entire religion uh, to allow this this publication to exist, uh, as if to justify the actions of the, uh, the the guy who beheaded a teacher. It's it's, it's quite frankly extraordinary. I mean, if you had well, said the equivalent, um, and, and you were not an Islamic academic, I suspect you would be out on your ear. But apparently, this guy's still working there. Well, I've made the point that you know I've seen individuals frame this Islamist terrorist attack as a state-led anti-Muslim brutality because the police, uh, the, the 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 terrorist had shown threatening behaviour towards the police after he had decapitated a school teacher on the street. Yeah, uh, there's people say, oh, th- this was heavy-handed. Yeah, why did to, they shoot him, shoot when, he, him when, he, when he only had and a I knife? Think it's, I think it's quite remarkable, really, that this this vicious Islamist terrorist attack is somehow being repackaged as 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 a you know an episode of state-led anti-Muslim brutality. It's mm. one of the most egregious egregious forms of victimhood politics that I've come across in a very long time. Yeah, now. and what about the French people's reaction? Because I haven't seen quite so many people out on the street uh, about something like this for a long time. Well, I think I th- I'd make the point that and I, I said this earlier, Mike, that. This was ultimately a vicious attack on the integrity of the French Republic. Uh, yes, no, I get that. But what I'm saying is, is that what, why is there why is there more of a kind of reaction to this than there has been to anything else before? 
Well, I, I think almost it's almost a case where school, uh, school teachers in France, for example, they're almost seen as uh, almost like a frontline infantry when it comes to representing uh, France's secular liberal traditions. So the school teacher uh, in, in this in this case was uh, showing uh, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in a civics class on freedom of expression. So and the, and then for for you know his gruesome de, you know the gruesome demise that he suffered at the hands of an Islamist uh, terrorist, I think that it's it, it is a, it's a real wake up call even within France that there might be a feeling within the secular French mainstream that we've simply had enough of you know, the, the kind of influence of re religious and authoritarianism within the French Republic, and there needs to be a very there needs to be a robust pushback. Um, to this. And is there a, a big Chechen population uh, in France um, or is this kind of likely to be a kind of one-off situation? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd make the point, Mike, that uh, Islamist terrorist attacks which are taking place in France, the perpetrators have been of different ethnic uh, backgrounds. What, what I will say, though, for just, is just make a broader point, that w when it comes to refugee policy, we need to have a robust integration framework in place. If refugees who, you know, they, they may well have experienced uh, traumatic events in their country of origin, that it, to, it, to successfully integrate refugees uh, into their new, the new society, you could say, that, 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 that serious effort needs to be put in to do, to do that. And I feel that, Policymakers, uh, members of the political classes, they've they, they feel very generous spirited when they put forward uh, a liberal refugee policy, but they fail to understand the risks involved. If integration afterwards, if it fails, there's very serious problems that may arise uh, for wider society. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Dr. Rakiba San, uh, Centre of Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society. Thank you uh, very much indeed for joining us. Uh, read his piece uh, on Twitter. I've put it out there. Uh, it's in the Telegraph today. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.